Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Hello and welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz. My name is Austin Peterson. I'm the host here as always for Tycoons. We've recorded about 160 of these over the years. We started just the beginning of COVID. And our intent here is to highlight small businesses, their owners, their founders, their CEOs, let them tell their stories. So today we definitely have a Tycoon Small Biz on the phone or on the uh, recording with us today. We've got Leo Bernstein, CEO and founder of Line Slip Solutions. So if you haven't heard of Line Slip Solutions, they're an award-winning SaaS company bringing the digital revolution to the risk and insurance world. So Leo, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Austin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Leo, we were talking beforehand. You're actually in Spain right now. So you're ready for dinner and then and then off to bed. And we're just getting our day started here on the West Coast. So um, before we jump in, you can tell us, you know, why you're in Spain, but tell us a little bit about, you know, you personally. Tell us about your family. Tell us about where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. Happy, happy to. Um, so I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Um, was uh, was there for the first eight years of my life, uh, city of New York. Um, parents escaped um, in the early 80s to, uh, to suburban Connecticut. Um, and they themselves are entrepreneurs. Uh, they were had a small E&P exploration production um, oil and gas business. Um, and so they they took us uh, to to Dallas in the mid 80s. So I ended up growing up in Dallas, um, going to high school there, uh, then returning to the Northeast for college, um, and then upon graduation, uh, opting for a career in finance, uh, where I was for the first 15 years. Uh, of my career, uh, then things have evolved, as you are well aware, in finance. And so I found myself looking for a better opportunity. And I started a small uh, real estate investment company uh, with a partner and uh, grew that pretty quickly uh, to about 2 million square feet uh, over a period of five years. And that's what really led to the opportunity um, that we're trying to attack with line flip. Gotcha. What about family life for you today? Are you married? Do you sure. have any kids? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm a happily married uh, guy. Um, got up my wife of uh, 17 years. We met on a blind date, actually. My Goldman Sachs salesperson introduced us, and I used to joke that was the only value I ever got from Goldman Sachs, um, but it was very significant. Um, got two boys, uh, 15 and 13. Um, one loves tennis, one loves soccer. And, uh, you know, we're here in Spain because um, we're a remote first organization. So I'm able to work remotely from Spain uh, for about two plus weeks in August every year. Uh, family's really happy. I'm really happy because at least if I'm working all the time, I'm doing it from a lovely place. Uh, and I more or less get to grab some dinner. Uh, late at night, once uh, once the day is over. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so yesterday actually was my 25th wedding anniversary. So congratulations, congratulations to you. And uh, that was a big one for us. 
It's awesome. Yeah, so and I have two kids as well. I do, I have one of each, though. So. Oh, you do? Oh. Well, my wife at the time would have preferred our second one be a girl, but I think she's very delighted that, that we have that we have Asher. So, yeah, we're very fortunate. Really, you know, I consider myself blessed. Um, you know, I've got uh, a lot of agency in my life, um, even if at this point I don't have much uh, choice but to move forward. Um, which I'm really excited about with what we're doing at Lineslip. But it does offer a whole bunch of flexibility, as I'm sure you can appreciate with your own choices, um, being able to accommodate uh, the, uh, the requirements of, of, uh, of, of you know, teenagers. Uh, it, it's pretty, pretty fantastic. I'm basically able to go to all their games and attend all their school events. So it's, uh, it's a massive benefit. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. It's uh, it's one of those things. So my oldest actually just got married in May, and uh, he got married fairly young. He's graduated college, but he's he just barely turned twenty three in March and got married in May. Um, got a good head on his shoulders. He's ready for it. So I, you know, I, I'm not concerned about that. Every everything's good there. But it's one of those where you look back and you think, gosh, you know, it was, it was just yesterday that that World Series after the towers came down in New York with New York and the Arizona Diamondbacks, you know, he was sitting on my lap for that World Series as a one and a half year old kid. And I'm thinking that feels like yesterday to me. And here he is as a married man and you know, college graduate about to go into his master's program. And it just, it, it reminds you how quickly it goes. But he doesn't necessarily need to start a family right away. So, yeah. right. I mean, it's, uh, I think the challenge for me, at least, I probably wasn't as mature as your son at age 23. I, I'm pretty confident I was, even though I don't know it. Uh, I was not prepared for that sort of commitment in any way, shape, or form. Um, I had to get the kinks out. Uh, I spent much of my 20s kind of getting, working on myself, um, as a lot of my friends would attest, and certainly maybe women that I dated. Um, but you know, that's, that's the whole beauty of this life thing is that you have all these experiences and hopefully have an opportunity to reflect on them. Uh, certainly I think it prepared me for running, uh, my own business and feeling confident enough to be able to do that, even though there was a lot of unknown, right? Because I didn't know anything about insurance, certainly didn't know anything about growing an operating business, having been a finance person. So, but you figure it out and, uh, you know, I think that 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 for me helped tremendously um, was a period of reflection in my early 30s um, to really help me identify what 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 are things that, that I was doing that were wrong, wrong, but weren't conducive to relationships, to growth, personal growth, um, to um, successful ventures. So. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to jump in and talk about line slip and, and what it is that you guys do and kind of what pushed you to do that. But before I do that, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask about what it was like to move as a teenager from the Northeast to Dallas, Texas. Terrific question. Um, it was uh, it was hell, uh, particularly because Dallas at that time, not as it is today, I would just say really thriving metropolis, 
Um, really exciting city, actually. Um, but at that time, the rest of the country was was growing in the late mid to late 80s. Dallas was going the wrong way because it was so exposed to um, to oil and gas, uh, natural gas. So oil prices were going the wrong way. And so much of uh, that Sun Belt, which Dallas was, was really, um, it was a boom town. And it had diversified into uh, communications and networking and technology like it did in the late 90s and early aughts. So I ended up moving from a public school in Connecticut to this um, fairly rigorous private school, all boys. So I went from a co-ed environment in Dallas, or in Connecticut, to a single-sex environment in Dallas and as a ninth grader, which is arguably the most awkward year for anybody, particularly boys. Um, it was pretty tough. Um, but I would say the reason why I think it's such a terrific question is that I reflect back on uh, the, that period of my life where I was really, I was getting crushed at school. I'd gone from being pretty much a three day student to my first quarter getting two Bs, two Cs, and two Ds. Um, my kids have heard the story a thousand times. And I honestly, my world was rocked. But that was really important, right? Here I was struggling. I had to figure out a way. Um, I ended up being a pretty good student. And all of that a function of making adjustments. And as I'm sure you appreciate from talking to all uh, us entrepreneurs, that's what success is about. There's no, it's not luck, although there are sure there's certainly elements of luck in my own story, but it's really more about responding to market feedback, responding to feedback, responding to whether it's market feedback, personal feedback, or what have you, um, changing things that aren't working, right? And sometimes anticipating things that need to be changed even if they are working. So uh, I learned that personally uh, during that period when I was uh, when I was not doing so well. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I think learning to adapt is a, is a huge skill for entrepreneurs, which is what you had to do, right? I mean, the, the culture is completely different. I'm going to make an assumption that with a last name like Bernstein, you're Jewish, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and there's, there's not a lot of Jewish people in Dallas, or at least there wasn't in, in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, there, just, there were, yeah, there were some, but... They were, it was, a, it was a small minority, certainly within the Episcopal school that I attended, for sure. You're absolutely right. Didn't mean to cut you off, Austin. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. So it, it's just, you know, learning to adapt and, and being around different people with different viewpoints, you know, looking at things differently, understanding that learning environments are different in certain areas. I mean, there's just, there's so many lessons that I'm sure you took from that period of your life that make you who you are today as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, I would say that going from um, that initial shock of showing up in Dallas at this all boys school, wearing my gray flannel Bermudas um, and going through all of the hazing that I had to endure to calling many of those guys, some of my closest friends, 
many years later, or even by the end of senior year, was um, was really a metamorphosis for me. Not just personally, but just recognizing um, how important it is to 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 grow um, and evolve. You know, so it's it's all of that. Yeah, sure. All right, so let's jump into to line slip solutions. So you've got you know a, a fairly successful commercial real estate business going, two million square feet, all in New, the New York City area, or kind of no, all, all no, all over the country actually. Um, and and in fact, that was part of it, which is uh, our whole approach to real estate. Because I wasn't a real estate person, so I had to learn that, um, which is something else that I would share about, you know. Um, that the, the love of learning or uh, the, the interest in pursuing new things, I think is also essential. But we actually bought a bunch of properties all around the country, um, mostly in retail, actually, some multifamily as well, um, where we identified opportunities where others saw what I call um, wrinkles, right? So people thought they were, it was hair. But we 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 did those hair the hair wrinkles, right? um, and so that was reasonably successful, and that's what led. I was the person responsible for overseeing the commercial insurance on the portfolio, and I was really struck when I went in for my renewal meeting. When you know, because every year you have to renew your insurance, and I went in to meet my broker, and I asked the broker um, for some context for the quotes for the renewal. Um, for the insurance renewal, and he couldn't give them to me. And I was struck by how poor the deliverable was and why there was no data in a data-driven industry. And that's really what prompted um, the insight that, you know, using technology, we could extract these data from these documents, all of which are structured data, premiums, coverages, um, exposures, meaning the risks, the assets of the business, the operations of the business. Um, and we could do it in a way where we could address a bunch of these manual processes because everything insurance is manual um, and do it in such a way to aggregate these data and make those data useful for our stakeholders and customers. So that was that was really it. Took longer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to, to kind of whittle that down, I mean, the, the reality is you did something that a fair amount of entrepreneurs, at least startup or technology-driven entrepreneurs do, and that is you identified something that could be better, right? So maybe it was a problem or maybe it was just something that, you know what, this could be better if I apply technology to this industry and they're not doing it, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. I mean, for me, as a finance guy, you can appreciate this. I didn't understand that such a large market because commercial insurance is a really, really large market. And insurance is simply a total return flop, meaning I pay a premium and in the instance certain things happen, there's a payout, right? And such a large market, all data driven, no one has access to data. There's no Bloomberg of insurance. So that was always the vision. Hey. Can we solve some of these problems at scale such that we can aggregate all these data and then make those data available to stakeholders? All right. Tell me what year you founded LineSlip. And then I'm going to, the follow up question to that is over that period of time, what have been your biggest challenges? Sure. 
So I founded the company technically in 2016. It's when we got going. Um, I was not full-time. So I wasn't full-time really until the beginning of 2018. So between 2016 and, 20, you know, beginning of 2016 and the, and, the, and the beginning of 2018, it was a side hustle. So I'd raised a few hundred thousand dollars from friends. I put in some money myself. Um, we, we started to explore this idea. I hired a CTO, who's my first employee, who's still with me now, um, and the architect really of everything that we've built. Uh, from a technology perspective. And then we had an offshore development team. And that's what we had. Um, then I had a bunch of part-time folks that worked with me for periods of time. And I and I basically came to the conclusion at the end of 2017 that if I didn't go full-time, meaning I left the real estate business and went 100% on the, on the software company, that nothing was going to happen. We had no revenue, right? Um, and so I made that decision. It ended up obviously being um, being the right one, um, although it was definitely not the safe one. I don't necessarily encourage people that are at peak expenses, um, dwindling savings, uh, to choose the high risk, high return path. By the way, we're still you know we're still a scale up business. So by no means um, have we you know have we achieved anything that notable, but we're getting there. Um, and we're pretty excited about how fast we're going. So you asked about what our biggest challenges have been. Um, and I think a lot of it, it has been about evolution because the problems or the, the, the challenges that you face as a company of three people are radically different from the challenges you face as a company of 15, right? And there are a lot of things you don't even think about. Communication, culture, um, team dynamics, they're pretty much non-issues at three people. Meaning if you have three people that are working well together, you don't need to worry about it, right? They're kind of immediate. Um, as you grow, um, the human thermodynamics, it's, it grows exponentially, right? The challenges, all of us working together. And that was always the thing that really uh, both surprised and awed me about entrepreneurism, about this whole uh, endeavor, is about how you can get a group of people, you can align them around a vision, you can get them excited. Um, and it's amazing what we could do. It's amazing what we've done. It's amazing where we're going. Um, but to get back to your original question around the challenges, it's really about me and us, so all of us, from my CTO, who initially was managing a dev team, who now has to be a lot more strategic, right? With his own time and make sure that we're still focused on the North Star uh, with respect to the product uh, and supporting the product, supporting the, the dev effort and all of it, right? It's gotten a lot more complex. And so he's had, and myself too, we've all had to develop skills that we didn't have as we've grown, right? And, and a lot of people have a hard time with it. And, it, and I won't, don't want to say that it hasn't, that it's always been easy. It certainly hasn't. But I think that's been one of the advantages of being, you know, you know an entrepreneur. And is, I started it and it was in my mid 40s. Um, it enabled me to really evolve because I was aware of who I was uh, and what I was good at, what I wasn't. 
And then I got a lot of advice and I was willing to listen to that advice where, where appropriate. Um, my ego wasn't part of it. And, uh, and I was very happy to appease the ego of everyone around because I didn't care, you know? Um, and so that was, so some of the things that I would, that I've been told are fatal flaws, right? I'd already addressed in my thirties. So, you know, I think that's it. It's our ability to evolve and be able to meet the challenges as the organization itself grows. Um, We have to grow with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you kind of mentioned something that is is pretty normal in startups. And I, and I you know, I don't know that anybody truly understands it when they get started and, and jump in and, and deal with it. And certainly an employee that's coming over to join your startup, specifically one that has worked for large organizations, right? So you worked for, you know, Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs is a very large organization and you had whatever your role was but that was your role. Well, you come and you join a startup, you're gonna probably be asked to fill two or three separate roles rather than just have one thing that you need to do. And that's not something that all employees are capable of doing. That's right. Well, just to correct you, I never worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, I worked at a place called Credit Suisse. So, which we don't need to talk about. <laughs> um, gotcha. I uh, thought you said you met your wife working at Goldman Sachs. So no, my, my goal, my Goldman Sachs salesperson introduced me to my wife. Ah, okay. Yes. Gotcha. So I hope that audio didn't go out because that's one of my my canned uh, my canned jokes. Austin uh, was the <laughs> only the only value I got from Goldman Sachs, albeit considerable value, was the introduction to my future wife. Um, no, you're absolutely right. When we were in our early days, all of us wore many hats. And by the way, this is another challenge. As we've gotten to um, almost 40 people now, we have to swim in our lane. And so it becomes more difficult for somebody who's been accustomed to touching a lot of different value to just touching this dynamic. And, you know, that's not easy. Um, and that's that's what I was referencing around having to evolve. Um, and what you said about working in a large company, you're absolutely right. Um, and I and I really try to evangelize this to the team, which is, you know, we have to be aware that not everything has to be optimized. It doesn't really matter whose fault it is. It matters that we get it right. Seriously, it just doesn't matter whose fault it is because we have to go from A to B to C and so on. And so if we all sit around and determine it's Joe's fault, well, who cares? We're still going to get to B and then we're going to get to C and whatever. Now, if Joe's negligent or sloppy or unprofessional or disrespectful or a bad teammate, different story. But I expect everybody to make mistakes. Very hard, you know, so we have a whole series of corporate values, um, which I also didn't appreciate, um, but one of my partners who I hired, uh, who came from a larger company, um, was adamant about it, and he was absolutely right. And that is, we need to have these touchstones that, that, that we can point to 
and highlight and remind us what, what's important, right? And so for us, it's customer centricity, it's being one team, it's accountability. So I recognize we're gonna make mistakes. In fact, we have to make mistakes. It's the only way we get better is by making mistakes. Now, hopefully they're not sloppy or stupid mistakes or mistakes of professionalism or whatever, but, um, but I expect us to make mistakes. And, and I also expect us to raise our hand if we do um, so we can fix them. Um, you know, and scrappiness. Scrappiness is really, really important, right? We can, if we can maintain our scrappiness as we become a more institutionalized business, a more mature business, man, there's nowhere we can't go. And as you know, a lot of these companies, they can be scrappy or entrepreneurial for a very long time. Salesforce, Cisco for many years in the 90s, like it's all these great companies. Now, ultimately the growth evaporates and they start getting mature. And then there are a bunch of larger companies that, that you've, you've seen have figured out ways to, to re-energize themselves. Like with Microsoft, you know, the Xbox development was an amazing thing. Like really built a separate culture and then use that culture to inform the rest of the business. Um, Apple's managed to do it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I, I, do, I do think, I try to think about how we can maintain our culture um, in a way that makes it a strength, helps us. Yeah, it, it's interesting because we just saw both sides of that, right? In, in a startup, you need people that can wear multiple hats. But then as you scale, they have to be comfortable taking off some of those hats and then staying in their lane. And it's, right. it's, just, it's, yeah, it's this evolution of, of companies as they grow. And some of those things are, are such that they actually cause a company to not ever scale to a certain level because they can't get out of their own way, whether it's the leader can't accept certain things or the employees can't accept certain things to get them to a certain level. And it's just interesting that, you know, you, you talked about those things that people have to be willing to overcome. Yeah. I mean, I also think growth is a real, um, it's, it's, it's almost a drug, right? All it's exciting. It's challenging. Um, people really get, unbelievably jazzed about growth. I mean, myself too. It's what keeps it really interesting. And I think for a lot of us, that 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 opportunity to drive value is so important. And that's something from my own perspective that I would credit some of my leadership style to really investing agency in the team. And what I mean by that is enabling the team to drive value at every level. Um, you know, no micromanagement of any kind, right? We set goals. Um, we agree as to what those goals are. It's, it's obviously not entirely democratic, but the vision is the same and the goals should line up to the vision. And then I empower you to get us there. Um, and, you know, Steve Jobs made the comment of you, you hire you hire great people and you expect them to tell you what to do or some, some semblance of that. Um, and we've really endeavored to do the same at Lineslip. And I think having that ability um, and the encouragement to drive value um, has, has, I think, made us a winning culture 
um, has really enabled people to, to find their place there, right? And then develop those people. That's the other thing about growth, right? Is in order to grow and sustain growth, you need more people. Um, and, and promoting from within and developing really good talent and, and highlighting to the team that we recognize talent, develop them, and we hope that they continue to um, assume more responsibility and get compensated for it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And you know, the other part of that that you mentioned, right, enabling them or empowering them to go out and do things the way that they think it should be done, as long as they just stay, you know, true to the vision. But you're you're telling them that it's okay to make mistakes, right. and you know. Employees need to hear that. They need to understand that, you know, they're not going to lose their job or there's not going to be a major reprimand or, you know, whatever the case is that they're that they're scared of. They need to know that it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. I, as the founder, make mistakes every single day in the vision of this company. I'm telling you that it's okay to make mistakes. I would rather you learn to make mistakes, know that it's okay, and then learn from those mistakes to make us all better going forward. It's easier said than done. People still fear making mistakes, even in a culture that, you know, no. ideally really encourages hurt. them to take chances, right? Um, and, and, and to be accountable. It's fine. Yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, you know, 2018, you make that transition, you're going full-time, you decide this is, this is where I've got to go. We've got no revenue, we've added expenses, we've developed something. Now you got to actually go out and sell it, right? And, and right. what you talked yeah, what you talked about at the beginning is this is not even a problem that the insurance industry necessarily knew that they needed solved. And so how do you go about that, making sure that they understand oh, this is something that we should be interested in. It is something that we should pay for. It's going to make us more efficient. Describe to us that process and how you got started with that. Yeah, so we had a bunch of false starts, Austin, when I was part-time, meaning we knew that we needed to solve some of these problems, but I realized pretty quickly um, from some of these, from a beta that I had stood up, that it was the wrong problem to solve. And so right after I went full-time, and this is a this is a serendipitous moment. I ran into somebody I knew through my real estate partner, who's a super successful um, private equity producer at a large broker. And I ran into him at our kids' soccer game, and he shared with me that a very large private equity fund wanted to aggregate all of their insurance data across. 150 to 200 portfolio companies that they had in their portfolio. And they had multiple brokers and lots of different portfolio companies. And what they wanted to do made a ton of sense. They wanted to see how much money they spent with individual carriers and use that data to leverage better outcomes, right? Weaponize it. I said, I can do that. I'm trying to do a bunch of other things, but I can, I can solve that problem for you. So we were in business and it turned out, I didn't think it was going to be that strategic because I didn't think it was that big a market opportunity, but I needed revenue. This was an opportunity to generate some revenue. It turned out it was really strategic because for private equity funds, they'd never been able actually to use their scale 
to drive any better outcomes in insurance. They never bothered for those who care for those funds, the larger funds, the more strategic funds, the ones with shared services and what have you. They cared and never were able to achieve that. So we were actually enabling this particular broker to do something very strategic. And now this happens to be a super successful um, insurance professional. So he was already very successful, but what we were, what we were offering was something that really played really well to what, to his approach to driving value for these private equity funds. And so what ended up being a small engagement became a much broader engagement. And what we were able to do is aggregate the data across the whole portfolio of portfolio companies, um, as well as offer individual portfolio companies access to their own insurance program data, right? So one individual operating business has their own insurance coverage, right, and insurance history, and we were able to afford access just to, for that CFO. And so I had the insight at the end of 2019, I was like, well, hold on, if these middle market, right, 300 to billion dollar sales businesses see value in organizing their insurance data where they have one insurance broker, what in a much larger, more complex business with much more complex insurance and multiple brokers see even more value? And the answer, of course, is yes. So now we have, you know, call it 10% of the uh, Fortune 500 uh, on the Lines of Platform. And we have something called Lines of Risk Manager, which we sell to large Fortune 1000 businesses that have multiple brokers and a lot of complexity. And LineSlip's able to organize their data for them. And you can see some of the logos on my, on my website. So yeah, so it's pretty pretty exciting. Um, and, uh, and we've partnered with the, the insurance brokers as a distribution channel. So we're empowering them by enabling them to drive value for their customers and ideally win business or retain business. Um, but at the same time, we're looking to partner with those brokers because we see their clients as consumers of our offering. And we don't really care whether we go direct or whether we go through our broker partners. And actually, I prefer us to go through our broker partners, right? Because we ultimately want to enable the value. Uh, and, and we're only enabled by having professionals use our data, right? Because we're just a data provider. We're just a tool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a perfect example of not being married 100% to your idea, right? And, and realizing, gosh, you know, we, we had a really good idea, but that's kind of led us to maybe a better idea. We're being told by the market that this is a better way for us to go. And so that's the direction that we'll go. Now, we may still come back to this other and it may still lead to something great. But right now, the market's selling us this is the way that we need to go and we can generate revenue and value this way. Right, right. Totally. totally. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> like, um, you know, growing your business while you're still losing money to sort of crystallize the urgency of growth. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like losing money month after month to make you, make you realize, I got to figure out a way to fix this. Exactly. I got to grow myself out of it. That's exactly right. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So we kind of move beyond those, you know, I would still say that at least mindset wise, you guys are still definitely a startup, right? But yeah. you're kind of past that startup 
concern, losing money, how are we gonna pay the bills? Do we need to do another raise? Whatever the case may be, right? What are your current challenges? Mm -hmm. So great question. Um, I would say a lot of it revolves around what we call the ideal customer profile. So <clears throat> when you think about who we're selling to, at least at large corporates, these are risk executives. These are the folks that are challenged with making sure that the whole insurance program um, is optimized. And it's, um, it's not easy. And they're a cost center. And we're in an uncertain economic environment. And we've gotten a lot of early adopters already to embrace us. So it's about convincing our ICP right, that what LineSlip offers is a clear return on investment. And so when the environment changed, like in the middle part of 2022, um, we didn't realize that everything was going to need to be ROI driven. Because initially what we were doing, we were such a small business is we were just picking off the early adopters, the ones that saw obvious value. Everybody sees value. When we show them the demo, they get it immediately. But now they need to sell it to the director of finance, the treasurer, the CFO. And they don't know anything about insurance and they probably don't care anything about insurance. So we need to highlight how are we gonna drive value? And so that was something that I needed to figure out and we struggled with it. And I've got a lot of, uh, a lot. I've got a handful of former senior risk managers on the team. And so we still struggled about how to message that. And ultimately we were able to figure it out. And it was pretty simple, right? If you have 40 carriers and you're spending X millions of dollars across 40 carriers, where there's capacity, meaning in the insurance markets, there are certain products where there isn't capacity and that's why the prices are going up like property, right? Um, where there is capacity, if I go to my carriers in say for cyber, cyber uh, insurance, and I say, I'm gonna go from 15 carriers to 12, I'll give you more premium, but in exchange, I expect a slightly cheaper rate cost to insure a million dollars a limit or whatever. That works, it works. Or to say, hey, I spent a million dollars with you here in cyber, but I'm spending $2 million with you over in property. Let's think of it as one relationship. That resonates with the CFOs. They get it. Volume-based discounting, right? Basic, but you need the data to do it. And if you have multiple brokers, believe it or not, and hundreds of placements, I know this is shocking for people. It's not easy always to track that. And then the carriers, well, the carriers have all of these subsidiaries that are wholly owned. So you need to know that Ironwood, right, is Sampo or Liberty Mutual. I can't remember. So if Liberty Mutual or Sampo is listening to this, they'll be offended. Um, but, you know, there are all these different relationships that are institutionalized in someone's head that we map. We map them. So um, that's the advantage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, you're, you're going to a finance guy who's making a decision based on money and you're saying, 
our service or our software as a service, right, is going to cost you this much money. But here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to tell you how much you're spending in all these different areas with these different carriers. And it's going to say that if you consolidate these into one relationship instead of however many you've got, it's going to save you this much in premium. So if it costs you $10 to pay for my service, but I can save you $200, does it make sense? Yeah. And here's the beauty of it. Are these prospects of ours and our customers, they have risk programs in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Or 100 to 300 million, a billion. Our services generally cost anywhere from 30 to 60 to $70,000 annually. So you only need to save one or 2% to drive a tremendous ROI. And that's, that's the argument we're making. It's compelling. You, you should, in my opinion, you should have salespeople lining up out the door to want to sell that to, to, for your company. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's the, it, the, the challenge is more around the cost center and around the fact that we've been a nice to have. So we have to elevate ourselves. And this speaks to your earlier question around what our core challenge is. We have to elevate ourselves from a nice to have to a need to have, to a must have. Yeah. And I would guess, this is just you know me thinking, but I would guess that a big challenge may also be getting FaceTime with the appropriate people at these organizations that benefit from what you do. That's right. Well, getting, yeah, it is hard to do that, although we're able to do that increasingly through building awareness through marketing and, and pushing messaging and being um, really effective there. And the marketing team has been amazing. Um, but it's also getting the attention of the economic buyer, right? And getting that person to care um, because they oftentimes don't, because they don't understand and or they're not evaluated that way. They've just got a million other priorities that they're, they're ranking higher. Yep, absolutely. All right, so now I've got the, uh, the golden question question that everybody seems to talk about as an entrepreneur and you even kind of mentioned some things at the beginning and being able to go to your kids games and you know all those kinds of things and so everybody throws out this term work-life balance right and I I don't know that it that it truly exists in 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 reality right that there's a true balance that the reality is I have a business partner I spend more time with my business partner than I spend with my wife Right. I just talked about the fact that we've been married 25 years, but the reality is I spend more time with the people that I work with than I do with my with my family. So how do you find a balance that works for you, for yourself, for your life, for your family? What do you do? Yeah, it's a great question and arguably maybe the most important one, um, because, you know, life's not a goal. Um, so for, for me, it was really important to build uh, a remote first organization because we began to really scale during COVID. I didn't, didn't really have a choice, but I was always inclined to build a remote first organization because when I started that real estate business, it was a truly remote, even though my partner and I had an office, we, I, I insisted on the flexibility of being able to work from anywhere. No paper, 
no no requirement to be in a physical office if we didn't want to be. Um, and so I saw the value in having, you know, been a technology analyst specifically around communications. I was fully aware that we were at the point where we could really conduct business in cloud hosted document storage and seamless, you know, cloud hosted applications. We really could actually get everything we needed done. The key was the willingness and COVID really accelerated that, right? COVID made it okay to develop relationships over a Zoom or a Teams call, which is shocking. So antithetical to how human beings interact. It's okay once you know somebody, but it became okay even before you knew them. That's amazing. At this point, I've gotten together with everybody on the team. We had an offsite every year. We physically get together absent the COVID year. But we really got to know people and we have to be more intentional about it, right? But to get back to your original question, being a remote first organization facilitates that because I can be responsive. So there are three kind of modes. The first mode is fully engaged, I'm working, I'm at my desk, I'm responding to Slack, I can jump on a Zoom or Teams or Slack, whatever, um, and we're collaborating and we have meetings and whatever. The second one is, and that's the vast majority of the time, I took a few days off last week. I desperately needed it, but I'm still responsive. Now, I don't expect my team always to be that way. And I think it's really important to unplug, but I'm able to, you know, work remotely. So my kid takes tennis lessons just outside Manhattan on a little island called Randall's Island where all the sports fields are. And I'm able to go there with my cellular modem and work, no problem. But I'm present, but I'm able to go to his game, got my phone, but I'm present. And, and I think, candidly, being able to do that, and my kids probably take that for granted because they don't know anything else, really, but that's been essential. And my wife and I really partner around that. Um, she's got a very flexible, she's a PhD in public health and works for a think tank, grant-making organization here in the city. And so we're able to um, manage with each other's schedules flexibly, flexi the flexibility to, to be present for the boys. And that's been really big. Like just to be here in Spain for a couple of weeks uh, and work remotely um, and not get this, you know, I probably get the stink eye sometimes from my team, but, you know, I'm pretty sensitive to it. I think they, they recognize I'm still super engaged. So, um, so it's good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reality is um, all of us would say that everything we do is for our family anyway, right? I mean, that's that's the whole reason we set out to, to be successful in business, to make money, to build something, to whatever. It, it's for our family, but so many entrepreneurs along the way lose focus of that, right? And there's a super high divorce rate among entrepreneurs. There's super high, you know, problems with kids that don't want anything to do with their, with their parents and, you know, all those sorts of things. And so it, it's something that I think we all need to be a little bit more sensitive to and, and recognizing that that's, that's what's most important. 
There are ways to still be successful. There are ways to still keep things in balance. We use technology when necessary. We put technology completely away when necessary. And we are present with our families and our kids and you know all those sorts of things. And so it just comes down to, for me personally, I'm speaking for me, not, not putting words in your mouth. It, it comes down to what's most important and what am I willing to do to show what's most important to me in my life? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that my kids probably don't think about it today um, about that I'm actually not, I don't have to sacrifice to be there. I've just figured out a way to do both. Now, am I doing it as well as I would if I weren't at the game? Probably not, but that's okay. That's the cost of my time to the company. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that. Now, in exchange of working all the time and this, that, and the other, but I don't complain about it. And, um, and I think the kids really appreciate that. And I think the best part about being an entrepreneur, I'll tell you, is that I'm able to model for the kids that we went from a whiteboard to a business. And that is the most important thing. This idea, which is, I think, a uniquely American idea, actually, um, uh, which is getting lost in all of the debates here, uh, culture debates and what have you, is that this is still the greatest place. And I couldn't have done this if I had grown up in Europe because they just aren't set up to do this culturally, which, by the way, also makes them very attractive in their own way. But everybody wants to be here. The United States, not Spain. Right? Yeah. They want to be here because they see opportunity, boundless opportunity. Now, it comes with a cost. It yeah. comes with a cost of the balance that you're talking about, the lack of cohesion, all these other issues that you see written about uh, or spoken about or blogged about but it's still, it's still the greatest place. And, and I think sometimes we lose sight of it. Um, but being able to model that for the kids is the best. That is the best. And, and I will look back on this and say, the kids, the boys are gonna realize if they put their shoulder into something and they get the right team together, they can do anything. We went to the moon. We went to the moon. I mean. Just think, a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, if you look at what where the world was in 1923, disaster, disaster. Now, I'm not sure technology is that great. Have all sorts of problems for our society, but this is one great thing: is it enables me to, um, you know, to do both, be an entrepreneur and be a husband, father without the sense that I'm really making massive sacrifice one way or the other. Yep. Yep. No doubt about it. I agree with you hundred percent on, uh, you know, the, the best opportunity to succeed in business and to build whatever it is that you want to build. It's in the United States. I just, I think that there's yeah. a hard, it's hard to argue that um, there's, 
people pouring in. We have problems in our country, but there are people who are pouring in and others who want to come to America because of the opportunity that exists. Totally. The only people that want to leave America briefly are the people that are wealthy enough to live anywhere. Pretty much. Yeah. All right, so last question for you and we'll wrap it and let you get on to your next meeting and then dinner, but um, where do you go from here? What's what's What does the next two to five years look like for Linesley? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, look, we, we have a product roadmap um, that we're really excited about that we think will enable us to drive increasing value for our customers, specifically brokers and corporate risk managers. Um, around the data so that people really understand whether or not they've got the right insurance, right? And they're paying the right price for it or what, what, what insurance people are buying. And by the way, we never want to replace the broker. The broker is the critical sort of the, the fulcrum of value. But we want to empower the broker with tools that today they don't have around market data understanding the experience of other similar businesses, right? Now, harkens back to the original insight, which is how come everything is bespoke in commercial insurance? Should that be the case? Of course not, because they're correlations. And if you have the data, you could, you could appreciate the correlations. But without the data, you can't. So everything appears bespoke when it's not. Two businesses that appear reasonably different might actually be very similar in terms of outcomes for insurance, but you wouldn't know that without the data. And so that's that's really where we're, we're trying to go, trying to help automate, um, make more productive, make more efficient, uh, empower um, through technology, uh, our stakeholders and customers. And I think in the next two to three years, we're going to be getting to that point where, you know, it's it's kind of like we've established now it's just run the horse around the track. Um, but we're not we're not anywhere close to that yet. Well still got some work ahead of you, but I, I believe you can get there. Leo, I really appreciate the uh, the time today, especially with you being on vacation or you know working remotely with your family and, and being in a completely different time zone. I've appreciated the interview and the time today. Oh, appreciate it, Austin. Appreciate the, appreciate the chance to, to come on your show. Yeah, you bet. All right. Well, we will look forward to following Line Slip over, uh, over the future. Awesome. Thanks for the time again. Thanks for inviting me on the, on the program. You bet. Thanks, Leo. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.